Hello, you know, welcome back to another episode of the Mark Rook Podcast. You know, every week that you listen to these episodes and you immerse yourself within this knowledge of relational wellness, emotional intelligence, even just because we talk about so many different subjects that are about your relationship to those things, about your relationship to money, your relationship to your body, because it's so magnified, whatever dysfunctions we have are magnified by our challenges in in romantic relationships, as you know, and that's why I love this subject. And what we're doing every time we engage in a book or a podcast or a, a thing, an article, it doesn't really matter what it is. We are putting deposits in to our knowledge bank, into our mental health, or our, as I like to call it, our mental wealth, that we are learning emotional intelligence, relational intelligence, all these different things. And I think one, the fact that you're listening to this, I just want us all to just take a moment to just feel gratitude for the fact Two things. One, that we can do this, that this platform exists, you know, podcasts. How crazy is that? So one, just that moment, just to say, wow, like this is a pretty cool world we live in. And we're very blessed because previous generations did not get to choose the media that they consumed. Media chose the media they consumed. And that's still very true of television and other uh, platforms. But you get to choose this, and I'm so grateful that you're choosing to have me be part of your journey and, and you be part of mine. And the second thing I think we should just take a moment to express some gratitude and appreciation for is that we're doing this for ourselves. Because, you know, I say to you all, you guys all the time, like, I'm in the trenches with you. I'm, you know, I'm not teaching from some pious rooftop. It's like, I'm a human, I'm in relationship, and I'm learning constantly. And... This week's podcast, actually, I mean, it has a guest that I have wanted on for so long because I really loved her book, which is a New York Times bestseller. And she's a psychiatrist uh, who wrote a book called A Mind of Your Own. And I first heard her on Joe Rogan's podcast. And, you know, she really sees mental health from a different perspective one that we often we probably all share you know in some way in, in that our struggles in terms of anxiety depression all those things they are related to emotional suppression and related to our relationship to our feelings and maybe what we observed what we inherited you know if you listen to the one from the podcast with Mark Wolin then you know that was about inherited trauma and humans are complex we are so complex and i think there's just a an acknowledgement of that, that we're all figuring it out. No one has it figured out. And that's why we're here, you know, to make mistakes, to practice, to be a human being. So if you've been hard on yourself about things that have happened in your life and choices you've made or where you should have made it, taken a left when you took a right, just know that's the point is to take those wrong turns so you can know what the right turn is to And then to teach from that, teach by doing, you know, is the most effective and then teach by teaching. This conversation, I know the conversation of mental health can be extremely triggering. One, because um, it's very sensitive, especially for people who suffer from mental health challenges, which I think we all do. Um, It's just that some of us get a title about it. You know, we might be called depressed or, or anxious or it runs, you know, we talk about the idea that you... It, it runs in your family. Get ready. I mean, this podcast episode 
is incredible. This is a highly researched. She knows her science. She is she went through the chasm of this experience as a psychiatrist who prescribed a lot of antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs. Get ready and just here's what I ask of you in the next hour and a bit is that if you feel triggered, love that part of you, but still keep listening and be open to the possibility of a different story. Just be open to it. You know, I, I, this is such an important practical thing to be able to do, which is when we get triggered, get curious because there is something in our identity that's being challenged. There's something in our self-worth that's being challenged. And I think often, and I mentioned this in the podcast, once we receive some form of diagnosis, whatever it is, we can often cling to that because we finally feel seen and acknowledged. And I, I think that's so important when we have been sort of running the gamut in the healthcare industry and the healthcare system. It's like, who would I be if I let go of that? Well, I'd probably be in chaos because I wouldn't know how to not be that because then there wouldn't be a title. And then I could maybe look at my own healing and my own relationship. And that's not to say, because again, the other triggering thing is, is when people think, well, medication matters. Yes, sure. Okay, let's just acknowledge that. Okay, but now let's get in this conversation and let's just really look at a different way of seeing mental health. I used to be a pharmaceutical rep and I know that side of the world very well. And it's interesting to have a conversation with someone who is, you know, essentially was one of my, you know, she wasn't one of my direct customers, but a client, a customer, and to see the other side, you know, and we're all sort of complicit in the same storyline and the same systems. And man, these systems are all being challenged. Look, we have, we just realized that our food is like for the last 30 years has been plastic, you know, and fucking powders and chemicals and bullshit. And, you know, that, that we have been in a lot of ways misled. We have to take responsibility for that because we're all part of that in some way. You know, if we don't stand up against something, we are part of it. So this is a big conversation and I'm super um, honored to be able to have it. And I'm so grateful to have you listen to it and to share what your experience is. And yeah, so I'm excited. I, I Without any further ado, I do want you to check this out and, you know, wherever you listen to this podcast please go give it a five-star review and a written review. And, you know, we're going to have challenging conversations on here. I just hope that you can offer some space of grace and compassion that we might say things wrong, that we might do things wrong. But the point of it is that we're risking having that conversation so it becomes a common conversation. It's not easy to be the people on, on the forefront having challenging conversations, as I'm sure many of you can attest to. So if anything triggers you, just know. I love you and I'm here for you. And, you know, I, I just can't wait for us all to listen to this and be like, oh my God, wow, so brilliant. So without further ado, here's Dr. Kelly Brogan. Welcome, welcome, Dr. Kelly Brogan. I have to tell you, it has been Sort of like a not stalkerish dream of mine to have you on here, but certainly a dream after I read your book, A Mind of Your Own, that completely like spoke to a lot of the truths that I felt about, you know, quote unquote, mental illness and emotion and all those things. So welcome. I'm so happy that 
I get to have you on here. I'm so excited that we've connected. Thank you. And I think one of the first things that uh, for people who are listening to sort of delineate, you know, when we think about a traditional psychiatrist and your title is holistic psychiatrist. And I would love to know what is the difference between that. And, and I think you started as one and became the other. Is that correct? Absolutely. I'm, I'm the classical turncoat for sure. And (laughs) it's, it's my personality and something that I am working on in my own growth and maturation to be on the extreme poles, right? So when I was um, in my conventional iteration, I was a huge believer in conventional psychiatry. And, and so much so that I specialized in, I was one of the first 300 in the world to specialize in prescribing psychiatric medications to pregnant and breastfeeding women. That's how much I thought they were the only solution that it would be justifiable you know, to, to prescribe in that setting. So when I took my very sharp left turn and began to identify as a holistic psychiatrist, it was, it was because I became interested in a question that we are never trained to explore and never even really um, given the, the sense of entitlement to as clinicians, which is why, right? So beyond psychoanalysis in psychiatry, there's not really a dedicated interest in the why. Why are these symptoms emerging in this person at this time? And so there is a whole approach to identifying what are called reversible root causes of presenting symptoms that was revealed to me through my own uh, experience with a diagnosis of an autoimmune condition called Hashimoto's thyroiditis that I simply began to apply to my patients and it opened up an entire world of healing that was never available to me when I was prescribing. You know, I never cured a single patient or facilitated healing in a single patient, not one time. The best, the best we offer in allopathic medicine is, is simply symptom management and perhaps some um, improved capacity to inhabit the matrix in terms of functionality. That's really a metric that we care about. And so um, it's really just a more beautiful type of medicine that I, I practice these days. Well, and it's interesting that in this current climate that we have so much anxiety and so much depression and all of the, you know, there's so much talk of mental illness and technology and all the different things that are happening that to even think that there's, you know, because I think about this all the time, that if you experience physical pain, you move, you change, you move your hand off the stove, you do the things. But when it comes to emotional pain, often we think there's something wrong with us. And so then to get back to baseline, because we've coded that sadness, grief, anger, all these things are bad emotions. Yes. There's something wrong with you. If you're experiencing it, you've inherited it. It's chemical. And those are all such sensitive topics for people. But what I love about your work is this opportunity of hope. Like what happens if it was a symptom of, of something greater? What happens if there's nothing wrong with you? Right. And, and that's why I've come to understand that the story that we are telling ourselves about our experience, sometimes this is called narrative medicine uh, because of its capacity to transform clinical outcomes. So the story that we're telling ourselves about what is happening is probably the greatest determinant of our capacity to radically transform, right? So, and, and that is on all levels, physical, mental, psychological, emotional, spiritual. And, you know, sometimes the analogy that I use is like, 
It's if, if you're terrified, right. And, and you're running and you, and this guy is chasing you, right. And he's got this menacing vibe and you would practically run off a cliff just to avoid, avoid engaging him, right. In any way. But what if, you know, you were to turn towards him and ask him, what do you want? And he were to say, no, I have this, this letter. It's so important to you. I, I have to give it to you. I've been trying to give it to you. Right. And you need this letter. It's like got the key to your entire existence written on this page. And this concept of, it's almost like Aikido, right? It's like taking the energy of that which we perceived to be the aggressor and understanding that it's ours to work with, understand, and then empower ourselves through. And this is a very, I don't know, kind of a high-minded concept. And I've, I've gotten a lot of criticism from people who are experiencing let's say, suicidal depression or in the throes of what's been labeled mental illness who say, well, yeah, that's a nice idea, but have you ever experienced this? And, and the truth is, it's really the only way out. Because if you are going to engage warfare with something that you think is happening to you, bad genes, bad luck, some bad, scary disease, right? That's happening to you because of your faulty brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. There is no winning that war. And you just need to look at the outcomes statistically, clinically in the guild of psychiatry to understand that the war not only has never been won, but it's never going to be won. Right. So, and that's poetically probably because the war is with the self. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's like, you know, that which you are battling, if you just take the costume off, you'll see it's, it's, it's you, right? It's you in the mirror. And so how can we finally grasp this and begin to orient differently, begin to tell ourselves a different story about symptoms? And again, whether those symptoms are, are bloating, migraine, acne, or you know, suicidal thoughts or psychosis or OCD symptoms or whatever label you happen to put on them, how can we begin to appreciate that there might be a, a very important gem in that dragon's mouth that is specially designed for you. Well, I think the the thing that people need to also understand, which you just spoke to, and I'd love to get more detail on, is what are the actual outcomes we're seeing? Because we're doing all of these, you know, I used to be a pharmaceutical rep, so you're you're talking to the dragon's head here, you know, <laughs> um, which is since, you know, it's weird to think back to that life. Right. Yeah. Um, Tell you me know, about I it. used to sell blood pressure drugs, drugs for irritable bowel syndrome, which now I know are so heavily correlated to the gastrointestinal response to being in fight, flight, freeze, to being in trauma, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I would love to, for people to get a real perspective of like, what are the actual outcomes that we're seeing? Because we're putting all our eggs in that basket you know, for the most part, what is that basket producing? Yes. So, you know, when I began to go back to the literature, I've always been a data nut and, you know, yeah, it's PubMed, great place. Exactly. I've spent every single Saturday for 16 years on, um, on PubMed. I get all the abstracts of the keywords I'm interested in. And, and this was true even when I was a prescriber. So it's, it's just my, you know, my default preference to kind of like see what washes up on the shore of PubMed. That's also how I know science can support any story you want to tell. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So there is no definitive truth. Um, There is only a process of supporting what you want to, the the reality you want to live in. 
So we're really at this crossroads where you can choose, you know, do you believe, which I did, that we are subjected to random forces, that we are, as Alan Watts would say, you know, a flesh robot on on a dead rock in the middle of nowhere, and we're just here to survive and hopefully get an A plus on life until we die? Or do you believe that in, in what the chiropractors call vitalism, right, that there is this intelligent emergent phenomena from materialism, right? That is the infused spirituality of what we see, touch, feel, who we are as organisms, and that there is a way to align with that so that you can experience your birthright of love and joy and bliss and ecstasy, and also the richness of what we call the darker emotions so that you are a part of the mystery of the human experience, right? Like which of those feels more beautiful to inhabit, you get to choose, right? Mm. But when I sort of woke up, I guess, and made this transition because of putting my own condition into remission through lifestyle change. And I was like, hold on a minute. I had one hour of nutrition education in my entire medical school education. And I never learned that you could put an autoimmune condition into remission. Like what else didn't I learn? So I went and, and spent probably three years obsessively researching everything I could, all of the sacred cows, all of the stones I could turn over. Yeah. I researched birth control and statin drugs that I formerly thought, you know, cholesterol medicine I thought should be in the water. And Oh my God, I used and, to think that too. Why and not, right? Cholesterol, you're like, this is such a crock. It's It, it was just the lens I was looking through, you know? Um, and so of course I began to research at a certain point when I was ready, um, psychiatric medications. And the prompt for that was a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic, which I was gifted by a colleague, as the universe would have it, at the very time I was ready to read it, because you don't ever read something that challenges the $200,000 foundation of your um, training and education, blood, sweat, and tears, unless you're ready to watch it fall, right? Your whole identity is just under fire in that book. Exactly. And, you know, this is written by an investigative journalist who didn't have have any particular skin in the game other than to answer the question, why is it that we have the highest levels of mental health disability the world over, according to the WHO, um, while we also have the highest rates of prescription we've ever had in human history? Like, shouldn't those be inversely correlated where more treatment leads to better outcomes? I think so. And so he presents 16 studies I'd never encountered in my training that make the argument that this is iatrogenesis, which is doctor-induced harm, that we are creating epidemics where they would not have previously existed, um, like bipolar disorder and specifically in childhood populations, and that we are perpetuating chronic illness where there would have previously been episodic, potentially even single episode illnesses, right? If you even want to call it an illness and that medication is the purveyor of that Hmm. reality, right? So just so I have some clarity on that, the idea being that when you treat it, it doesn't pass. So you keep, because you're like sort of placing a bandaid or a, a filter or whatever, a suppression upon that thing through however you do that, you don't pass it. So then it becomes exactly. a chronic condition. Exactly. And it's not even, unfortunately, it's not even a, um, 
Band-Aid, right? Because it's creating a new biochemical normal, the medication is. Yeah, and, we don't realize the impact of that. Right. And we, we because of the, the, the languaging, antidepressant, antipsychotic, anti-anxiety, we are conditioned, and because of direct-to-consumer advertising, we're conditioned to believe that a chemical imbalance is being corrected. But what's happening is a new state, a new neurologic state, new hormonal state, new even immunologic state is being created by the persistent application of the medication every single day. And this state is different from person to person, right? So like any other substance, like alcohol, for example, um, there might be adaptive elements of it that you like, right? Maybe it makes you tired or maybe it makes you feel a little calmer. Maybe it makes you sleep better. Maybe it amps you up. However, over time, there is an adaptation to that persistent chemical exposure that itself defines a new biochemical normal. And this is why there were two things um, in terms of risks that I felt a tremendous amount of anger and then guilt and confusion that I had never been informed about these in the thousands of prescriptions I wrote. I'm still working with this karma you know, today trying to, 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 to really relieve myself of this. One is that these are the most habit forming chemicals on the planet bar none. Yeah. Bar none. Okay. So this has only ever been, you know, a grassroots um, phenomena where, where patients are, you know, screaming from the mountaintops about their withdrawal experiences until about 2014, when I read the first paper that validated many, many, many thousands of patients' experiences saying, yes, these medications induce a withdrawal phenomenon. It's not relapse as we were trained to tell patients it's withdrawal. Oh, so, so the training was, it's a relapse from, yes. of the condition of your mental from the removal of the Correct. Yeah. And I have seen a couple of very good friends of mine suffer through the titrating down of dose where they're like incapacitated. Yes. Yes. And you and can they become were never incapacitated before. Exactly. One was going exactly. through divorce and got prescribed an antidepressant. Exactly. And he's like, of course I'm depressed. You know, like there's anyway, sorry. Exactly. No, that's exactly it. And I never knew that. And I feel patients should be entitled to that information. And the, the other is, is related to something you mentioned, which is that we learned from research done on people who were prescribed specifically antidepressants, although this is relevant to other categories of medication, prescribed these medications for kind of run-of-the-mill, what are called off-label reasons, like, you know, you just got a divorce or your dog died or, you know, you have some stress at work. So you don't even meet these fictitious criteria, you know, for um, major mental illness, you're simply prescribed. So you never were suicidal, certainly never were homicidal or psychotic or anything like that. And in these um, studied individuals, they went on to commit acts of um, homicide or suicide out of nowhere early in their um, prescribing um, treatment. And so the understanding that these medications can induce unpredictable and impulsive acts of violence also was a pretty jaw-dropping reality in the scientific literature that I had to contend with. And I never had understood that before. And of course, we're not risk stratifying people. We're not identifying who's at risk. How do you, right? There's there's some understanding that it's related to variants in liver enzymes that certain Uh, people um, develop a kind of uh, intoxication state that alters it on how they metabolize it exactly yeah. but you know we're not at a place where when but you go to a doctor yeah yeah 
they're not looking for that. And so, you know, so beyond the risks, to answer your previous question, I wanted to know, okay, so how how worth it is it to take these risks? Like how well do these meds actually work? Is there more to the story? Were the risks under discussed and were the benefits overemphasized? And that's exactly what I, I found to be the case. You know, I knew a little bit about the fact that antidepressants are, you know, probably somewhere around hovering like 30 40% efficacy rates, but I didn't know about a very important phenomenon, which is um, the role of what is called the active placebo effect in what we are calling medication effects, right? So anytime I lecture about this, somebody raises their hand and they say, well, you know, I don't care what you say, Prozac saved my life. Mm -hmm. I've heard that before. Of course, right? And so, so, okay, so was it the chemical effects of Prozac that saved your life? Or was it some attendant phenomenon to Prozac that perhaps we could leverage without putting you at risk, right? In the ways I just described. And the person who studied this is named Irving Kirsch. He's arguably the world's placebo effect expert. Yeah, he has some amazing data. Yes. And and what he found um, after he solicited through the Freedom of Information Act, hidden studies, inconvenient outcomes um, that were in the locked file drawer of pharmaceutical companies' data collections, he found that 82% of what we are calling medication-based effect is actually active placebo effect. I'll I'll define that in a moment. And so that means that only 12% of people get benefit without, you know, and and then the other 80, sorry, 82. And then so it's 18% get benefit. And then the the 82% are getting all risk and no benefit. Okay. So the risks may be that I described. And of course there are, there are many other ones, but the, the benefit is simply the shift into this new, new normal that happens to work for them and also comes with those attendant risks. But the rest of the people actually just believed that something was going to get better for them. And so therefore it did. And how did he control for this? He, he looked at studies that had similar side effects, okay, so dry mouth, headache, you know, gastrointestinal distress, but totally different unrelated mechanisms. So like a cardiac med called atropine, yeah. for example, right? And then the outcomes would be the same, right? Or he looked at um, research that basically was able to isolate the fact that people responded to the side effects because they believe that that meant they were in the drug was working Mm -hmm. and then the drug was working. So all of that is to say, we don't have a predictable and valid evidence base for the benefits of these medications. So the risks become really worth considering, but then the other arm of informed consent, which is a major interest of mine, right? So how, how can we help people to make their own best decision? Mm -hmm is risks, benefits, and alternatives, right? So something I never learned anything about, alternatives. What's alternatives? Maybe a little psychotherapy, but everybody, you know, in the psychiatric world positions that as kind of like for the worried well, you know? So what about alternatives, real alternatives for people who are really struggling, okay? So not just the worried well. And that's really what I, that's the lane I found is the um, alternative model that is side effect free, has only potential benefits, is certainly more cost-effective, is totally self-administered so that you're not dependent on a system, and has outcomes 
like ones that I have published that have never been matched in clinical history, let alone through allopathic medicine. So that's what I'm most excited about sharing. Well, and I, in your book, you talk about those outcomes as well as I watched the uh, testimonial video for your new book, Own Yourself. And a lot of, I mean, in the work that I do within relationship, which is really not just in the chasm of romantic relationship, but I just find that that is the magnifying glass to the things we don't do well. You know, yeah. like you might have bad boundaries at work, but you'll really have bad boundaries in your yeah. relationship. You know, whenever we face rejection or abandonment, that's when the rubber really hits the road. Who are you in those moments? And that really sort of speaks to this rejection of self and the suppression of self and the suppression of feelings and the repression of feelings that happens when we're worried about how we'll be experienced and then leading to symptomatic things like you're talking about. You know, that sort of cascade of emotion. Is that is that fair to say? 100%. And I actually only you know, was able to put this observation, you know, bring it to my awareness after many, many years of doing this work, um, which is that those who are captured by the system Mm -hmm. and, you know, let's just talk about the mental health system for now, although I would argue that could include other chronic illnesses. Agreed. Those who are captured are, you know, what are sometimes referred to as highly sensitive people, right? So these are individuals, I call them the canaries in the coal mine who validate you know, Krishnamurti's quote that it's no sign of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. Mm. So these individuals feel sometimes collective pain, sometimes intergenerational pain, grief, trauma, sorrow, rage, but certainly need tremendous amounts of guidance and support to work with their vulnerability. Their vulnerability is, 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 is exquisite and it is not something wrong with them. It is the source of their greatest gift. And that's what I found is that when people choose to take this more audacious path, right, the the journey of self-discovery rather than symptom suppression or after perhaps having engaged symptom suppression tactics, they, they come into contact with their gift. These are artists and visionaries and healers and creatives. And I've watched them blossom into ownership of that. It's an exquisite privilege to be able to sit in the sidelines and and watch this happen over and over and over again. But I would argue that 100% of the patients I've worked with and people who've come through my online program or in my community have this deep, dark feeling that something is wrong with them. They believe that they are broken, that they are damaged, and that they are sick on a deep, irreparable level. Okay. And so imagine that when you're offered contact with a system that says, you know what, you are broken, but it's okay. True. We got a a solution. We got a solution to fix you. Right. And so there's this moment of validation of feeling seen for that pain, except it's a bait and switch. It's like a shiny poison apple, right? Where then you are captured in that identity as a victim evermore. And it never, ever, 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 ever can feel okay. It will never, ever feel, you know, that you have access to your wholeness, Mm -hmm. that you can come into that, that place that if you've ever taken a risk and, and transformed some tender, painful place with the courage of love, you know the feeling of pride that you have access to, right? If you're living in that dependent victim position, you never get to taste that. 
So what I find is that particularly when people enter in their mid thirties, it's like the mask starts to slip. Okay. And, and all of the defensive structures and efforts that you've been making up until that point to feel safe, okay, and in control, which may or may not include medication or a diagnosis label or several, they begin to feel bankrupt, right? And they begin to feel like they contrast with this sense that something is missing. And how do you begin to reclaim that? How do you begin to explore that? Well, of course, you would agree, you know, that it is the hero's journey. It's the heroine's journey, right? It's, it's the walking towards the cave you've always been told never to venture into. And it involves developing an intimacy with the parts of you that you wish no one would ever see, right? And certainly not you, right? Like you don't want to know they're there and you certainly don't want anybody else to know they're there. But that is um, the invitation is to begin to relate to those as a source of your your power and a source of your more full experience of love, compassion, openness, expansion, and ultimately joy. And I have found that to a, to a person that I've worked with that in the darkest moments of their process of, you know, self-discovery, it's punctuated inexplicably with yeah. this, these moments of joy that come out of nowhere, not because they like got a new car or got a promotion at work, but simply the joy of liberation that comes from, you know, shining a light where it was always dark, right? There's so many places that we keep secret, right? First, we keep secret from others, but ultimately it's really like, how are you saying no to yourself? How are you hiding from yourself? How are you, what are you keeping in that cavern, right? Um, With the locked door. And most often, you know, we find it's, it's a whole, a whole bunch of um, childhood programs and, and wounds that uh, really demand our attention if we're ever to fully actualize as adults. And I think that transition, that pivot that comes from, first off, I've been validated by a system or a physician or whatever it is. And then I feel seen and validated. And I think, you know, in a lot of sense, what you're saying, which I'm sure you've experienced a lot of is probably quite triggering for people who have been validated by that system because yeah. it feels as though what you're saying is invalidating or rejecting that truth for them that they've latched onto that says, but I am seen and I am enough. And, and I think what's interesting about that transition is the validation of the system that comes from outside of you that might be medical validation. It still means that your wholeness is dependent on something else and a pill or whatever it is. But when you if you can hold that moment, that that trigger that anyone listening might be experiencing right now, if you can just hold that trigger for a moment and imagine a world where you're actually empowered, and this is actually a symptom rather than an illness of something's wrong with you, that you're broken. Yes. You know, I say to yes. people all the time, if, if there's not enough books that are going to give you self-acceptance or make it make sense till you do, till you just say, okay, I surrender, like show me the path. I'll walk in. And I know when I hit whatever, quote unquote, a bottom of a few, I felt like I woke up in someone else's story. Mm. And then I didn't know who I was, you know, in a lot of ways. And yes. And that's yes. both terrifying, but now I have a blank canvas, you know, and, and that you start to learn like, which parts do I like that I was taught and which parts aren't me and that self-rejection. I, I mean, I love that the whole sort of expansion that you're speaking to is 
about really giving birth to all of you. It's the best analogy I've, I've come upon because there is a terror that attends this process of ego dissolution, of personality uh-huh. dissolved, you know, where you thought, you know, I have a patient who said this to me once, like, I thought I was a vegan and a Democrat and that medication was necessary for the rest of my life. And now I don't know who the hell I am. Right. <laughs> and so it's that um, when you have a single experience and, you know, the path that I lay out starts with the low hanging fruit of very basic lifestyle change, right? Very basic self-care that offers you a single experience of your own power to influence how it feels to be you. Okay. Mm-hmm. That little experience has the capacity to disrupt an entire worldview. And that disruption necessarily has a domino effect around all of your belief systems, right? Through all of your um, certainties, uh, all of your assumptions. Goodbye, certainty. Yes, they come, they come into question. And the fear is often, well, you know, if I don't know my deal, right? Like if I don't know what my story is, um, and that story can include that I, you know, I have depression runs in my family and this is just something I have to deal with and I'm doing a pretty good job dealing with it. Thank you very much. It could include that if we allow ourselves to be without story for, it's often a very short period of time. Like in my, you know, clinical experience, it's on the order of a couple of months. Yeah. Then that is like the ultimate boot camp. It's like the ultimate training ground. It it is you can consider it like your your vision quest, your Native American vision quest. You're three days out in in the wilderness without food or water, right? Once you get through that, then you have the capacity to decide who you are, right? And it also organically unfolds where it becomes apparent. It's like emergent. So I, I often tell my patients like guess what? There's a way to live life where you make no decisions, where everything just becomes clear because you're a physically clear vessel. And because you've liberated all the energy that was going to defending this false avatar, this false image of who you thought yourself to be. And it served for a good long while, right? So that's why I love this Maya Angelou sentiment, you know, when you know better, you do better. Mm -hmm. I get, I get loving the idea of taking a medication and being a psychiatric patient, I get it because I participated in that, right? I understand it's a lure. Trust me, I really do. And if that feels fulfilling and complete for you, I am not here to judge. That is not my role, okay? I am simply offering a path beyond if it's beginning to feel bereft, if it's beginning to feel incompletely satisfying, and if there's a part of you that's rattling in your cage saying, there's got to be something more here. I'm ready. Yeah, Yeah, I'm ready. And and there's a point of readiness. There's a point. Listen, I look back on my my spiritual journey and trust me, there were so many things I was just not ready for when I was not ready for them. There's no shame in that. It's just a fact. It's just an evolutionary fact. Yeah. I've definitely learned too that there's this line where I used to push myself to I have to do something versus I choose to, like where the feeling lives within me, but I need my world to fall apart first to give me permission, or I need to blow my own world up to give me permission, rather than just saying I actually can just choose that thing. And really, this transition that occurs in the work you're talking about is moving from 
you know, relationally, if you choose me, then I must be worthy of being chosen, that we're taught that there's a validation in someone else validating us. And this transition that happens when I don't need to adopt belief systems that are not my own, that I did for survival, you know, because everything that we do is survival-based till it's not, is I don't need to be validated in who I am. I validate who I am. And that is a painful transition because there's a space where you don't trust that if I am authentically me, will I lose everybody who I love and loves me? And sometimes you will. That's the hard part. But in that space is such an act of trust you know, it's such an act of ego death. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're around people who think the way you think you're around other people who are also speaking life into you. And I think it's such a beautiful gift to just offer someone the possibility that if they're open to it, then there might be more. I think we all have that part of us though, you know, when we're in that and we hear it and we often reject it first. And anything you get triggered by usually means you need to get a little curious because you know, when your partner says something like, hey, you did that thing. And you're like, no, I didn't. You probably did the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's probably a grain of truth in that. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you just think about a life lived in childlike fear of judgment, Mm. right? Because to a child, judgment is synonymous with death, right? Rejection with abandonment. But as an adult, that can start to really tax the system, I think by design, so that it's no longer sustained as a coping mechanism, right? But if you imagine that you're going to curate your life experience so that that you garner the approval of all of those around you, and you're constantly bobbing and weaving to avoid their judgment, that's an exhausting, exhausting way to, it literally costs you nutritional resources, let alone energetic and spiritual resources. So that's where what you're suggesting is the truth that I've come to, which is that this is an inside job, right? So if I am judging my myself, right, then I will be insanely sensitized to even a whisper of that coming from the outside. And I'll engage in warfare thinking I'm going to beat that person or be right about it or defend myself. Um, and of course, you're still left with that feeling that something is deeply wrong with you and you're, you're seeking to, to hide it, right? So there, there are very simple practices that I found can uh, begin to engender an adult consciousness around this and also an emotional literacy that will liberate you from the victim orientation towards anyone or anything. So literally, you are not dependent on anyone or anything. And that does not mean that you don't get to enjoy the company of others and the love and attention of others. It simply means you no longer see them as, you know, um, oppressors, right? Because that's how we are in a childlike consciousness wired to perceive the badness on the outside. And and we function this way on, on on a nationwide scale. I mean, we're where we are constantly at, at war with the bad guys, with the terrorists, with the germs, you know, even the, the weather. I mean, it's like literally we're, we're constantly in a posture of trying to win and apply more and more force and control where force and control often was what engendered this sense of separation, right? So, so I encourage, you know, my, my patients and the folks I work with and have a lot of these practices in, in, in this new book on yourself to 
you know, begin to orient towards their triggering, you know, and I think everyone knows this word at this point, but let's say a charged reaction to anything, Mm -hmm. as you said, as an opportunity to Mm self-parent, right? And to end that warfare, end the imagining that it's coming from the outside in and fortify yourself with a kind of inbuilt, you know, sort of bionic shield that we, I mean, it's, it's soothing even to imagine living in that state. Right. And so it's a, it can be a very simple practice because otherwise, you know, the analogy I use is, it's kind of like you set up all your furniture. It's so pretty. You dust it everywhere. You know, the lights are on perfectly. The music is playing. And meanwhile, like your emotional self or your child self, as I call it, is like bolted in the, in the room screaming for your attention. And you're like, why doesn't it feel like home in here? You know, like, why does it yeah, feel yeah. so comfortable? But you can't, you, you're not going to get away with ignoring that tantruming child. You must attend to her in order for her to, 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 to quiet down. And so how would you attend to that child as a loving person? You would say simple things like, wow, you're really upset. Whoa, this is, has this been going on a long time? It sounds like it. You know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's okay. And that's, literally how I encourage people to talk in. And this is a practice I do for myself every time, every time from, you know, feeling like somebody cuts you off in traffic to, you know, your partner saying you look fat in those jeans every single time. That is the simple way that you attend to this internal, you know, volcano. One in that I'm fascinated too, within and I would be interested to get your perspective on it because there's that internal, there's both the external relationships that often cause, you know, that are filled with conflict, toxicity, all those types of things that in all the literature that I've read on that, it affects your microbiome, creates more leaky gut. Uh, your body is in response, like it's sitting beside a tiger. So you have all these massive inflammatory markers that are up, not, you know, not also your immune response is suppressed because your conflict you know, your body's in fight, flight, freeze. It's not like, hey, we should digest this food. You know, it's not in that state. It's not in rest and digest, so to speak. So if that experience exists outside of us, what's going on inside of us when we reject feelings, thoughts, authentic self, voice is also a state of conflict and chaos. And so there's also that state of inflammatory experience in, in this work that you're talking about, this ability to turn towards the inner child, start to acknowledge, accept, and give love towards whatever feeling, thought, thing that's going on. What is sort of, first, is that pretty true in terms of that internal conflict, chaos? And then is that what you see? Because that, of course, is the perfect birth and breathing ground for autoimmune. Yeah. So, you know, what I learned when I uh, began to understand that the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness had been abandoned by researchers decades ago. Like literally no one is, no one for decades has been researching. It's called the monoamine hypothesis because not, this is not just like fringe folks like me. This is people from the National Institutes of Mental Health, you know, key opinion leaders who themselves have been quoted as saying the, the monoamine hypothesis is insufficient to explain what we are calling mental illness. So the chemical imbalance theory in 70 years has not had a single shred of valid evidence. So now it's been abandoned. Well, and what is good then? 
marketing persists. Yeah. Yes, it's a meme. It's a meme. The What has taken its place has been something called the cytokine theory. So as you alluded to, it basically puts chronic mental illnesses at, on par with you know diabetes and heart disease and cancer and autoimmunity as being lifestyle-driven phenomenon that are perpetuated through an ongoing inflammatory response. And so I remember how I, I was almost in disbelief when I, I saw the literature that suggests that even psychosocial stress, so AKA, you know, your, in, your relationships and your interactions and the story you're telling yourself about what's going on is sufficient to mobilize macrophages from the bone marrow, is sufficient to induce that inflammatory response. So it doesn't just need to be, you know, gut level imbalance or infection or whatever the other models are, nutrient deficiency, toxicant exposure, that it can literally start with your your thoughts. And that's yeah. evidence in the, the scientific literature, I think is really elegant and cool. And, you know, this discipline is, is called psychoneuroimmunology yeah. and it connects, right? All of these dis- seemingly disparate body systems, whether it's gut, immune, hormonal, or neurochemical, and so I've, you know, I've become very interested in, in the, the protocol I use is quite simply a method for sending a signal of safety from many, many, many different, almost like a 360 kind of orientation at one time, right? So how can we basically blast your body, mind, and spirit with this safety signal where you know, previous to that had only ever been this ongoing perception of being alert, alert, alert. Yeah. yeah. How do you and, do that? I'm excited. <laughs> it's a very basic thing. Um, the most important ingredient, as we've discussed, is the mindset, mm-hmm. right? So you can engage my protocol with a great degree of skepticism and really feel, you know, largely married to um, the allopathic system that says relief at all costs is all that matters rather than a mindset that says, I'm going in here and I'm doing it like my you know life depends on it and I'm in for whatever comes. I'm going on my journey, right? That mindset piece is the most critical ingredient because otherwise I cannot even physiologically explain the outcomes that I've witnessed. Mm-hmm. But it's essentially a way of addressing the low-hanging fruit because when we talked at the beginning of this conversation about the why, right? So these root causes... There can be many, many physiologic imbalances that can masquerade as psychiatric problems, and they can range from micronutrient deficiencies like B12 to, you know, gluten dairy intolerance to thyroid imbalance to uh, medications, right? So connecting dots between medications like birth control or antibiotics or even vaccines that can induce psychiatric effects. If you don't know that, then you think, well, now I have you know, depression, or now I have, you know, OCD, or now I have even insomnia or fatigue or ADHD or whatever. So connecting these um, dots is really, really critical. And, you know, what we're calling mental illness can also be like the emergence of clairvoyance or psychic capacity or, or, you know, incredible access to parts of our brain that, that most of us don't have. Right. Mm -hmm. It could be, of course, as is, you know, your wheelhouse, it could be a toxic dynamic that has not been identified as such, or that feels like a chronic source of victimization. So we don't know. And there could be a, a long spiritual walkabout that you're being called to or it could be one of these basic physiologic problems, right? So let's start with the low-hanging fruit. And that's why I'm a huge believer that every single 
adult um, requires a one month commitment at some point in their life to this physiologic rebalancing practice um, that I could explain very simply and easily so that you know what your baseline is, right? Because you may think you have insomnia, fatigue, poor concentration, bloating, your hair, hair is falling out and you've gained 35 pounds. You don't know why. And by the way, your mood is flat. You're super irritable and really forgetful and you feel unmotivated. You head to your primary care doctor and you better believe you're leaving with a prescription for an antidepressant and maybe a sleep med or an anti-anxiety drug, right? Um, but what do you look like when we've sent this signal of safety for a month, right? Don't you want to know that first? No, because then you can proceed, right? In with, with eyes wide open, with so much more energy. And I have seen the resolution of symptoms as severe as six panic attacks a day on multiple medications heading for electroconvulsive therapy within one month's time. So that's not to say every single case of chronic illness resolves in one month, but I have published papers where these very, very severe cases that conventional medicine couldn't touch resolved in two to four months time, right? Wow. So we're not talking about years and years and years of, of endeavoring to heal. And I think that it really has to do with what happens on a neurobiological level when you say, I'm in control, right? Mm -hmm. And you engage the practices that reflect you're in control. That is a very, has a different signature than the neurobiology of somebody who feels afraid, dependent, and helpless, right? So how do you engage that signature? Well, it has to do with a practice of self-care that is significant enough to disrupt your, your mm -hmm. otherwise existent mm -hmm. lifestyle, right? So it's, you know, what I recommend often, it takes about two, two and a half hours of your time every day that you're attending to yourself wow. and you're taking care That's of yourself. For it's radical, right? For most in of a month. Us. Once yeah. in a month, that yes. was radical for a lot of people, you know? Right, I'm right. Curious, uh, and I do want to get to those things. I'm curious is... A lot of the reaction to what you're saying, um, which happens to what I say too, is it the an addiction to being sick sometimes, mm. like, or not wanting to let go of that because it's familiar, like it's, they, it's all they've known. It's also even it can even be neurochemically addictive, right? Um, meaning that we become enculturated to a certain kind of chemical signature to our day, and our beliefs conform to that. So that's why this commitment, and I love that you brought up choice. I believe that to be the most unique defining characteristic of the human experience Everything. that we have choice. We always have choice. Even if you're a POW or, you know, you, you're, you're experience, experiencing bodily violation, you still have a little, little, little bit of choice, even yeah. in how you're responding, even in the story you're telling yourself about it, you always have choice. And of course, I'm an advocate for the, the big choices, behavioral choices we have on a daily basis. You know, what kind of water are you drinking? You know, what kind of food are you preparing yourself? Are you choosing to pause? How are you sleeping? What are you doing with your Wi-Fi? And, you know, these basic behavioral choices, just kind of cleaning them up, bringing them to the light of your awareness so that you can educate yourself about the choice that makes the most sense to you. But it's, uh, it's through that that we disrupt the um, habitual identification um, and sense of safety and control that we derive from 
our identification as a patient, right? And I find that's a huge piece. There's actually a lot of fear for many people in, um, because my goal is for people to never be patients again. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's my goal with every single patient I have ever worked with. I've graduated from my practice. I don't have any, any, any long-term patients that would, I would consider that a, a clinical fa- failure on my part. And so if that's the goal that I've had to help, you know, support and facilitate setting them free, right? Which you think would be like all rainbows and unicorns, but actually it can be quite scary because there's something that we are getting out of our status. Maybe it allows us, right. It allows us to not have to um, take personal risks. Maybe it allows us to say no when we don't want to go to a party, you know, maybe it allows us to um, otherwise align with our core beliefs that something is wrong with us, right? So what are you getting out of it? Maybe it allows us to not have to deal with big trauma in our history that we kind of have the feeling we might get away in this lifetime never dealing with, right? So if there's something we're getting out of it, then it's easier to understand why we might be choosing it. And then it becomes easier to say at a certain point, well, I'm ready. I'm ready to choose something different. Well, it makes too their, your environment somewhat predictable if you are uh, whatever you're latching onto or or having is controlling the behavior of people around you yes. and maintaining a certain level of predictability. Yes. And and we all know, right? That's like, hard to claim, you know. Totally, totally. And there's there are, I think, so many of us who are feeling that we might be, we're often the black sheep in our families, right? But we're feeling that we might be the one called to end a lineage level patterning, right? So the patterning you're describing can exist within one lifetime, but it can also exist intergenerationally. There's so much data on that within mice, within rats, within uh, worms, you know, that there, I think there's something like 15 generations of trait change can last in a worm. Right. So, so we're in this incredible moment in time, I feel where so many of us are feeling like it ends with me. Time, yeah. I don't know what that looks like, but I know that it ends with me. And particularly if we have Fuck children, yes. there's a level of awareness that like, no, I'm not doing this to my kids. I'm not handing down my shit because I am going to, I'm going to address it, right? I'm going to heal and I'm going to learn what it is to love myself so that I can love these kids unconditionally, teach them what unconditional love is, maybe for the first time in 50 generations, right? Oh my gosh, and, yeah. Because the model of human behavior was not self-care. It was sacrifice for the greater community, which I think there's a balance between compromise and and uh, choice, of course, of self, but there should never be self-abandonment in that. Exactly. And that served for a time. That, that mentality served, right? The mentality of my grandmother in war-torn Italy was different than the mentality I need to bring to the world as my gift today. Right. And so that's why so many of us are in, in the zeitgeist of, of reparenting ourselves and of healing on these dramatic radical levels and of t- making courageous choices to begin to learn what it is to experience unconditional love. And it might be because on a planetary level, we are at the cusp of a dimensional shift, right? That is, is all encompassing so that we can become this you know, cooperative organism, right? Um, instead of a bunch of, you know, independent cancer cells, we can understand, oh, I'm a, I'm a cell in this complex organism and my cell wall needs to be intact and my inner organelles need to be healthy. And I owe that 
to the collective, right? It's the paradox of how self-love and self-care is the greatest contribution mm-hmm. you can make. Change your world, change the world. Exactly. That's it, you know? And, and an act of inner rebellion is an act of grand rebellion. Yes, I've come to see that. as Yeah, well. it's such a beautiful thing to know that your own self-expression and breaking out of whatever prison you feel like you're in is so contagious, far more contagious than, you know, the act of isolating. Totally. And that's, yeah. I mean, I've learned that because I have a big mouth and I can be very persuasive because I have, you know, the, the arsenal of science and literature, you know, in my, in my, uh, you know, back pocket. Um, And so I spent a lot of years trying to coerce, convince, debate, and otherwise, you know, influence those around me to follow me where I was going. And it it took me a lot of hard lessons to understand, no, no, Kelly, your only responsibility is to your own self-care. Yeah. And it's like, you know, Byron Katie says, you know, when you think somebody else needs therapy, you need therapy. Right. <laughs> so it's and, and and I have found that to be true. That until and if 100%. I can can fully, fully, fully focus on aligning with myself, then whatever is going on out in the world is, is nobody's business. And even big decisions in my own life are not, it's not a time to make them or, you know, beyond just letting them emerge. It's like, I call it the chopping wood and carrying water. It's like that, you know, sort of um, Zen practice of getting back to basics so that you can orient around um, the bigger call towards, you know, offering your gift to the world. Well, and your work is an act of rebellion within I mean, the way you think and what you're speaking to is not common thought within the psychiatric world or the psychological world. And so, you know, hats off to you and applause to you for taking a lot of bushes to the face, you know, forging a path that not really many people have walked. And and that is what you're asking everyone else to do, you're doing, which makes your message both authentic and courageous. And so I appreciate you sharing it. Oh, well, that's probably my greatest credential is that I know what it is to, um, to, to go through the dark night of the soul and to come out the other side. Because, you know, I brought a lot of information to defend the experiences of vulnerable patients who were not being served by the system. And it was those patients who then in turn taught me what it is to emerge from your own birth canal, the more authentic version. You know, I, it was probably... 300 times I heard the phrase, wow, Dr. Brogan, I finally feel like myself. And I remember like the first hundred times I was like, what is it? What? What does that mean? Don't you want to feel like pretty? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Pretty and smart and strong and what yourself. I thought that was the problem. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So it's, um, it's through their experiences that I have learned of this archetypal journey home to self through this, you know, sort of neverland of, dissolving the false self. And we all go through that medicated or not. It's just that I have a lot of experience with the, um, the path that is being medicated and coming off of medication to a med-free fear-free relationship to not only, um, your mental, um, and emotional experience, but also physical, right? So my patients do not take any pharmaceuticals, not for a headache, not for, you know, uh, bronchitis, not for UTI. And so it's a whole um, cohort of individuals who now have 
lived experiences that are, are kind of rare in American culture of how to relate to the body as an expression of imbalance and how to respond to that and support that rather than fight it and suppress it. And that, again, that's not to say one is good or bad or right or wrong, but there is a certain kind of uh, approach to being in a body um, and to having emotions and thoughts that says, these are all meaningful and I'm going to relate to them with curiosity and without freak out, right? Without um, that reflexive saying no to myself, fighting with myself, uh, because that's a, that's a, can be a more painful way to live. So I'm curious, you know, as, as I'm sure everyone listening is like, can we get to the things? Uh, yeah. So what are some of the ways in which someone can begin that journey from where they're at, whatever that is, to, you know, this act of self-trust, this act of self-care. And you said it's yeah. a sort of a simple regimen, but it's 30 days of, you know, and I, I think, you know, it's everyone can, if it means changing your life and possibility, I think everyone can commit to it. So tell us what that is. Well, that's why, you know, I have an entire staff of clinical volunteers who help me to write up these history making outcomes. So this is, this is beyond just like, oh, well, I feel kind of shitty, like how maybe I should try this out. Like this is the most powerful medicine I have ever witnessed. And I refined my protocol with the help of my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who was the only clinician I've ever heard of for 27 years to put terminal cancers and degenerative illnesses into long-term remission. So this is the power of this of this practice, right? So, and the 30 days are really your opportunity to kind of see how it feels for you. I put the uh, protocol in a mind of your own um, based on my experience reversing Hashimoto's. And now I have several years experience with this protocol at scale. So um, through Vital Mind Reset, my online protocol, through my practice, uh, it's all the same protocol, right? And now I've seen thousands of people engage it and I I know it works. (laughs) So that's where I come with my confidence that if this messaging calls to you, here's where to start. Um, And it's not easy. It's a serious month of your life and it's a sacred opportunity. But I've put more than has ever been published anywhere other than my program in the second of three parts of the book, Own Yourself, because I feel like, you know, for an $18 book or something you take out of your library, everybody, you know, deserves this information if you can operationalize it yourself, which many, many people have. Some people need more, you know, direct support or community, which I have found to be a very important ingredient, uh, as I know you'll understand, is is the the community elements. And I, I started to see that because I would use the same protocol with my one-on-one patients. And then I would have these people I never interacted with who were paying far less money, you know, in terms of an investment and the outcomes through my online program were like, you know, triple quadruple pacing my, my practice. Mm. And the only difference, well, first of all, there's less contact with me. So that was like a interesting ego, ego question. I know that I had. Feeling. I've, had the same. I've had the same in my groups. What am I doing wrong here? And then, um, and the other thing was just the community element because there's yeah. this community holding. And I, I began to understand, wow, this is where it's at right now. You know, it's Thich Nhat Hanh saying, um, community is the guru of the future. And so, okay. So the, the protocol has some very basic pillars um, to send the signal of safety and the first is um, nutrition. 
So I learned about this through my own healing process. Then it was validated and expanded by my work with my mentor who worked with 12 different diets. Um, the diet, there's one dietary template I offer that is a starting place primarily for people who are struggling with autoimmune conditions, with depression, ADHD, um, anxiety, fatigue, hypothyroidism. So this is a whole collection of um, symptoms that are very typical for what are called parasympathetic dominant. So a certain section of the population who struggles with these particular kinds of things when their autonomic nervous system is out of balance. And that's yeah. the majority of people who are attracted to my work in the first place. And I also have had very robust outcomes with hormonal imbalance and particularly what is sometimes labeled PMDD um, or PCOS. So the dietary template I offer basically eliminates addictive foods and beverages, um, inflammatory coffees out. Yeah. yeah. So I, so I used to practice in Manhattan and, uh, I'm in uh, Florida now and I used to practice there and, and the two elements that are, were literally, I, I almost lost women. They almost got up and left were, were <laughs> alcohol and coffee. So, so basically you are cutting out all, um, dairy. So that was the hardest one for me 10 years ago, all dairy, except for, uh, ghee, which is a clarified butter and eggs are fine. Um, you're cutting out all grains just for a month. So in my practice and protocol, you introduce um, gluten-free grains again. So it's not a keto diet. It's not a low-carb diet. Um, but you're cutting out all grains for the time being, except for dicots like quinoa or buckwheat, if you happen to like those. I don't get too excited about those, but some people do. We're cutting out white potatoes uh, because they are a source of something called resistant starch that has a very particular impact on the gut microbiome that may not be a good thing if you're out of balance. Um, and then we're cutting out all alcohol and all beverages other than filtered water. So mm -hmm. that includes coffee, tea, even kombucha, everything, just water. That is really challenging for some of us who use beverages as like, you know, comfort. So I did this protocol 10 years ago and you know, now I have a, a, a membership called Vital Life Project that's like for step-by-step -step versions of this. And we do a little challenge each month. And one of them is to just drink water as your beverage. So it's like a little piece of this protocol. And I instituted that for myself because I'm, you know, because it's so easy to slip back into. I have like three matchas a day or whatever. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. I so know. it's... I love coffee. Just It's just water. That's tough. So then you're like, well, okay... And so we're also taking out processed sugar, if that's not obvious. But then you're like, well, what the hell do I eat? Uh, so it's basically food. <laughs> okay, it's so like food. actual food. food. Yeah, real food, yeah. yeah. So, But in my protocol, um, I'm infamous for the inclusion of red meat specifically. Yeah. And that doesn't mean force yourself, but it does mean give yourself permission to understand that this may actually be a very important component of adjusting your nervous system. And again, the why of that is a little beyond what we should get into here, but it has to do with my mentor's work. Um, so red, so animal foods of all kinds are included. So that's fish and meat and chicken and game and eggs with the yolks um, and lots of natural salt to your taste um, is liberally included. So a sea salt or Himalayan salt. Lots of natural fats, so whether that's ghee or nuts and seeds or coconut oil. There's a smoothie I, I sometimes think is my greatest offering to humanity because of the love letters that I get for it. And all it is is like a, it's like a kind of like chocolate milk 
um, that is has a ton of natural fat in it, right? Oh, I love so this already. It's helpful for people who have a lot of blood sugar imbalance, which is a, a very big driver of anxiety and brain fog and sleep disturbance is simply blood sugar imbalance for those of us who are sensitive, which would be the parasympathetic dominance. And then all vegetables, right? Except for the potatoes, you know, that I mentioned are fair game. All fruit is fair game. And then natural sweeteners like maple syrup or molasses, honey, you know, in reasonable quantities that you might've imagined indigenous people ate. Right. Um, and, and that's, you know, and, and it's a no cheating policy. So, you know, don't, don't do this and then like go to a wedding and have wedding cake, right? You're just wasting your time and effort and you're creating stress for yourself. So commit mostly it's a month of cooking at home, which is a major change for a lot of people. But the recipes that I offer are like super basic and super simple. Like I don't cook the way I cook is, it's like 20 minutes tops, right? Everything I make. And the other pillar is, um, the stress response, right? So I am trained in Kundalini yoga and that's my bias because I never could get with meditating when I needed to sit and count my breaths or like, you know, focus on my thoughts as clouds passing by. I just would never do it. It wasn't interesting. I didn't feel a difference in a short enough period of time. And that's why Kundalini yoga is very appealing to me because I institute a three-minute practice expectation as a part of the program, and you will literally feel different in three minutes of of these meditations um, that are often a little bit complex, like involve like certain kinds of mudras and focusing on your breathing in in a complex pattern, exactly, or like eight sniffs in your nose and then one breath out, and and so it kind of keeps you busy enough. But meanwhile, these are literally ancient practices that have been divined for the adjustment of the autonomic nervous system, and that is an everyday commitment no exceptions every single day for three minutes. Everybody has three minutes. You might not have five, but you have three. And then the last piece is, uh, is the detox. And, you know, of course there's conscious consumerism, like don't buy that detergent, buy this one. But then it's also something that was handed down to me from my mentor, which is the notorious coffee enema. And this is particularly relevant for people who are coming off of medications. You know, I had about five years of practice tapering meds uh, with people before I met my mentor. And then um, the year with him, there was an, and and since then it's a total sea change because of the coffee enema. So it's a very very powerful form of detox. It's like coffee, but that feels like the wrong. (laughs) It's the wrong hole, right? I I won't get to taste it, damn it. I know. I mean, I guess it I has a totally different it. effect. Yeah. <laughs> it has almost the opposite effect because it stimulates um, a relaxation-based nerve bundle um, in uh, the the flexure of your colon. And um, it's a very, very powerful detox tool. Not everybody needs this, but um, for, for populations that identify as being pretty, you know, in need of a lot of um, healing, it can be very powerful. Otherwise, there are other practices like dry brushing and Neti potting and tongue scraping and yeah. things. So, so that's primarily it. And then there are, you know, other accompaniment kind of practices and details and t- tips and tricks, but that's the, the premise of it. And if you commit to it seriously, you know, with your adult power of choice, then it can be an entire um, uh, game changing practice. You'll change your life. Literally, you know, yeah. so, and I, and I have the evidence for that. And, you know, I love, uh, there's a quote from Alan Watts where he talks, I mean, you're obviously an Alan Watts fan. Huge, huge fan, yeah. One of my faves. Yeah. I listen to his stuff all the time. 
Me too. It's like soothing for me just to hear his voice. Like if he was still alive, he could for sure be on the planet Earth, you know, like doing the voice Morgan Freeman. (laughs) Totally, totally. Yes, exactly. Um, But I love how he says, and this is not to dismiss someone's version of God or religion, but he says that when we wake up to conscious choice, we become the gods we were taught to praise. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that God can't be outside of you because that's still what he's saying, but that when we actually choose, we shape our world. And I love that. I think that's such a powerful place to be in, to know that you get to choose, you get to decide. You don't have to do anything. That's right. You have to. And that's such a, isn't that a crazy that that's a form of rebellion? That you don't, you can say no to something, which, you know, boundaries preserve wholeness. That's essentially what they do is they create a safe space within yourself and you get to decide what permeates that. I love that. Um, I'm a huge fan too of Byron Katie's and she, um, and she says that even about like, taking care of your children. Like you actually don't have to do that. You don't have to take care of your children. You're, you're choosing to do that because you feel better about yourself when you do that. Mm, right. So it's like simple frame shift. Cause of course, right? yeah, I do. Because otherwise you're, you're a victim of circumstance. And, mm-hmm. and she, like I, the reason I, I love her work so much is because I'm, I am in my lifetime here to break a cycle of victim consciousness in my family lineage. And I think so many of us are. And so it requires that I have, you know, I practice this hygiene of, of examining all of my little stories, which sometimes are very well cloaked where I am like, Oh, well there, poor Kelly, you know, like all of the little stories of like, Oh, it's so hard. The martyr stories. It's so hard for her, you know? raising her kids by herself or whatever it is. And, yeah, yeah. and there's so many of them that hide. I mean, I even found these stories in my activism, you know, like, oh, all my colleagues just flee when I come under attack. And it's, it's so um, surprisingly empowering to find out the ways in which you are at least co-creating that reality. Mm-hmm. It feels like blaming the victim, but ultimately it is the path to changing the lived experience of what it is to be you in the world. To step out of this is happening to me to this is happening for me, which is such a transformation. So where do people find you? Thank you, first of all, for sharing all of this information. I mean, obviously people can go. Your book comes out, I think, is it September 20th? Uh, September 17th. Yeah, it drops and it's on... um, pre-order it now. Mm -hmm. So we'll make sure we get that out. The link will all be in the notes. Everything you are about to share will be in the notes for the podcast episode. So, so where do people find you? Yeah. So I'm just, um, at kellybroganmd.com and I'm so grateful for this type of support because I have been blacklisted and censored and, you know, I don't have the advantage of, traditional publishers who can waltz their alter, uh, authors onto, you know, the Today Show and 2020 and Nightline and Dr. Oz, um, largely because of pharmaceutical funding for those outlets. Um, and now even, you know, Google has censored me and many of my colleagues off of searches. I saw that, that there was yeah, it's a change in their algorithm. Reality that changed the algorithm. So I'm very, very grateful for this kind of grassroots support for the mission so that I can do everything I can to you know, make this more beautiful reality come into being for, for all of us. Um, I, I appreciate it so much. And well, thank you for sharing your light and continuing to step further and further out there, which I know is being that, uh, I often have a loud voice too. And I like to bring research along with me. That's yeah. like what I cling to, to say like, Hey, you're a skeptic. Here's some data. 
And as you said before, you can pick any research to support any position. So why not pick positions of empowerment? Thank you. You know, so thank you so much for the work that you do. So it's kellybroganmd.com. Everybody go check this wonderful woman out and, and let's all do this healing work.